Hi, my name is Brian. Welcome to Episode 7 in the podcast, Homo Deus, Humanity's Evolution from Social Institutions to World Peace. In Chapter 7 of his book, Harari provides his most complete description of the religion of humanism and how it differs from all the religions that came before it. The differences are significant, and there doesn't seem to be any criteria to determine who is correct. As Harari describes it, it all seems arbitrary. On the other hand, the religions do converge on at least some conclusions, such as murder being wrong. Is it possible to find any solid ground behind these common conclusions? For those of you listening in real time, welcome back from the holiday break. I hope each of you was able to relax and somehow connect with family and friends, even though many of us are still in lockdowns. I'm excited to be back podcasting again. There is a lot of good material to cover in the remaining part of Harari's book, and I am eager to get to it all. In terms of what you can expect, I am thinking that I will post two episodes a month. After this episode, there are four more chapters in Harari's book. So if all goes well, I'll post one episode mid-January, one at the end of January, and then two in February, and then the podcast will be complete. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey so far. Now let's get on with episode seven. Chapter seven is the conclusion to the second part of Harari's book. As a reminder, part one was called Homo Sapiens Conquer the World. In it, Harari explained what gives humans the unique ability to dominate all the other animals. In part two of his book, Homo Sapiens Give Meaning to the World, Harari examines the bizarre world that Homo Sapiens have created. This examination comes to a climax in this chapter. Here Harari gives his most complete description of humanism, along with all its flaws. He has been giving us glimpses of the humanist religion all throughout his book, and now he brings it all together for us here. Therefore, we should probably expect some heavy lifting and a few uncomfortable truths. Harari starts by reminding us that modernity is a deal. It offers us enormous power on the condition that we give up our belief in a great cosmic plan that gives meaning to our life. The problem is, it is impossible to sustain social order without meaning. So modern society should collapse. Without meaning, we can't set any rules that are normative for our life together. So how have we gotten away with this? Harari says that we have managed through a cunning escape clause. This is the new religion of humanism. The humanist religion worships humanity and expects humanity to play the role that God played in Christianity or Islam and that the laws of nature played in Buddhism and Taoism. We often tell the story of modernity as a story of humanity losing its faith in God. But it would be better to tell it as a story of humanity gaining faith in itself as the center of all meaning. 
It took centuries of work. Thinkers wrote pamphlets. Artists composed poems and symphonies, and politicians struck deals. And together they convinced humanity that it can imbue the universe with meaning, all by itself. Harari then goes on to describe how various aspects of European culture changed with this shift. Consider ethics. Previously, humans were seen as uniquely important and gifted, but at the same time ignorant and corruptible beings that needed supervision and guidance. Therefore, God was the source of all authority. Under humanism, authority comes from our feelings and our desires. If we want to know if a particular action is right, we need to determine how we feel about it. Note that meaning and authority always go together. Whoever determines the meaning of our action also gains authority to tell us what to think and how to behave. Consider politics. Previously, political authority came from God. But under humanism, the voter knows best. Their free choices are the source of ultimate political authority. And how does the voter know whom to vote for? By listening to their inner voice. This would have been considered the height of foolishness in medieval Europe. What about art? Previously, what was beautiful was judged by objective yardsticks. And the artist wasn't even really given credit for the work as they were just an instrument of God. Kind of like how we wouldn't give credit to a pen when an author uses it to write a great novel. Under humanism, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Art is anything people think it is. Consider economics. Previously what was produced was controlled by guilds. The guilds determined what was good, and therefore what was built and sold. Today it is the free will of the customer that determines what is good. If customers buy it, then it is good. The customer is always right. It doesn't matter how many experts were involved in the design. If the customer doesn't buy it, then it is a bad product. Consider education. Previously education focused on instilling obedience, memorization, and studying ancient traditions. Today's teachers often say they are trying to teach students to think for themselves. That's the high-level view of what humanism is all about and how it differs from the traditional ways of thinking that came before it. I would like to focus in on ethics a bit more. Harari says that previously we viewed murder as being wrong because some god once said, Thou shalt not kill whereas today we view murder as being wrong because it causes terrible suffering to the victim, to his family, and to his friends and acquaintances. Although I do not disagree with Harari's assessment, I think he's right, I think he may be missing a larger point. The way Harari presents it, it almost comes across as coincidence that humanism and traditional religions have both come to the conclusion that murder is wrong. After all, the reasons for saying murder is wrong are totally different, so it would be reasonable to assume that they could have just as easily come to a different conclusion. 
and yet all human societies have always said murder is wrong. It is true that there has been some variation between human societies on the definition of what is murder and what sorts of killings are okay. But in the end, they all conclude that murder is wrong. Is this just a huge coincidence? Or is there some real evolutionary reason driving the conclusion that murder is wrong? Fortunately, it isn't that difficult to determine the reason. Murder is always determined to be wrong because it destroys the peace and stability of the community. Without a prohibition against murder, society would descend into chaos. One murder would lead to a series of spiraling revenge murders. No society can function without limiting the destructive impact of murder. But isn't it interesting how neither traditional religious societies, nor humanism, nor Harari can bring themselves to be totally honest about this reality? Now that we have sorted out the issue of murder, what about theft? Again, theft is wrong in all societies because it leads to violence and disorder. Although medieval Europe claimed it was because God said theft is wrong, and humanism says it's because it makes people feel sad, the direct evolutionary reason is because of internal violence. Again, the definition of theft varies from culture to culture, but all cultures recognize there has to be rules around who controls property. Otherwise, there will be chaos. What about the example that Harari gives of an extramarital affair? Although there are significant variations between cultures, all cultures inevitably come up with some rules limiting sexual activities. These rules reflect the real evolutionary reality that unrestricted sexual activity leads to jealousy, violence, and disorder. Humanism, of course, has less restrictive rules than medieval Europe and other traditional religious societies. Humanism's main restrictions are against incest, rape, and polygamy, whereas most traditional societies are quite a bit more restrictive. So who is right? How can we adjudicate this? Were traditional societies too restrictive? Or has humanism gone too far? This is a difficult question for us to answer. It is the kind of question that we look to religion to provide an answer for. But what happens in situations like this when different religions give different answers? How do we ever resolve these disagreements? Again, I think it would be helpful for us to be honest about our evolutionary need to limit violence. If we truly want world peace, we have to be honest that extramarital affairs lead to jealousy, hurt feelings, and potential violence. Therefore, we have to conclude that extramarital affairs, like murder and theft, are wrong. But we shouldn't give sexual activity special scrutiny. The difficult news is that all forms of indulgent behavior lead to violence and disorder. We know that human desires are based on imitation. Indulgent behavior begets more indulgent behavior and ultimately violence. Consider airplane travel. Is airplane travel a good thing? 
When looked at through the lens of peaceful sustainability, the answer is likely no. I can't see how we can ever make airplane travel accessible to everyone. It will likely remain for the privileged only. Airplane travel creates a world where some people are jetting around the world like Greek gods, whereas others are limited to the speed at which they can walk. Because our desires are based on imitation, this arouses jealousy and frustration. As Harari noted in a previous chapter, a billion Chinese and a billion Indians want to live like middle-class Americans, and they see no reason why they should put their dreams on hold when the Americans are unwilling to give up their SUVs and shopping malls. And every stride that brings the Delhi slum dwellers closer to the American dream also brings the planet closer to the brink. This is exactly the issue. Indulgence is contagious because our desires are based on imitation. In addition to the envy, frustration, and violence that indulgent behavior begets, it often has other negative effects too. For example, for airplane travel, the additional side effect is environmental destruction. And for indulgent sexual activity, it is diseases. Yes, ecology and biology should be considered in the determination of what brings us peaceful sustainability. Another common homo sapien response to observed indulgent living is becoming judgmental. The observed bad behavior serves as a premise to establish a tribal alliance. Oh, we aren't like those people who engage in that kind of sexual behavior. Or we aren't like those people who have no regard for the environment. This isn't helpful either. It is just another way that the original bad behavior begets further bad behavior. The reality is, we are all a lot like those people, whether it is the sexual behavior, the airplane travel, or in becoming judgmental. These are all very normal homo sapien behaviors, and they all lead us down the path of endless conflict. These are difficult truths, especially for those of us with privilege who are accustomed to living indulgent lifestyles. It can be depressing to think about all the things that we enjoy that might, in the end, not be good for us. I know I feel this way. I get this feeling when I hear someone talk on climate change, racism, or the other problems we face. It is the realization that I need to change in very fundamental ways, and it feels like it is going to be very difficult. For Homo sapiens, Life is a lot like the TV reality show Survivor, establishing alliances and strategizing to get what you want. This is what excites Homo sapiens. Harari suggests that medieval knights would have found Survivor very boring because there are no heroic deeds and it is mostly just people talking about their feelings. I'm not so sure. I think the knights might have been fascinated by something so totally foreign that at the same time illuminated ways of relating that were very familiar to them. Sure, knights don't talk about their feelings, but the alliances and strategies implemented by survivor participants 
would have been very similar to the kinds of things that happened in their own relationships, with other knights in their order, or their neighbors, or in their families. Indulgence may be enjoyable for its own sake, but it may be even more exciting for how it marks us as one of the exceptional ones, who has risen above the rest of humanity. From this perspective, the ethic I am proposing of eliminating all the subtle violence that we participate in is depressing. But there is another perspective that sees it as an opportunity. To these people, the life of trying to get ahead isn't all that attractive. They choose a more broadly cooperative approach because they find it truly desirable. This is where I see possibility for humanity. To summarize this section, if we want world peace, ethics needs to be based on whether or not behaviors contribute to peace. If something strengthens the cooperative spirit of goodwill, then it is good. If behavior leads to conflict, even in subtle ways, then it is not helpful. This does not make every ethical question easy to answer. But we will get better answers by grounding our responses in something that is directly connected to our goal and can be studied scientifically. It forms a much stronger foundation than human feelings or saying, God said so. In reality, many of our laws, such as laws against murder, theft, and rape, owe their existence to this principle of limiting violence. But we need to go much deeper than just obeying the law. There are many subtly violent behaviors that can't and shouldn't be made illegal. They can only be implemented by inspiring people to see their value. Homo sapiens only see loss when asked to give up their advantages and indulgences. Those transitioning to the new Homo Deus see new possibilities. Harari provides lots of other helpful and interesting material on humanism in this chapter. I'm not going to summarize it all. I highly recommend you read his book. But I do want to talk about his grand conclusion that as of 2016, there is no serious alternative to the liberal package of individualism, human rights, democracy, and a free market. With the rest of this episode, I will talk about this conclusion and the lessons we can learn from it for predicting our future. Harari covers several key concepts in this chapter, so this episode is going to be a little longer than the others. If you want to take a break and split the episode into two parts, now would be a good time to take that break. Here, let me cue some intermission music. Okay then, welcome to part two of episode seven. As noted, Harari claims that today there is no viable alternative for organizing society other than liberal humanism. The first thing that we need to understand is what he means by the term liberal. Harari explains that like any large successful religion, there have been schisms in humanism. That is, there have been disagreements 
about what the true version of humanism really is, and this has led to three main branches. Liberalism, or liberal humanism, is the first branch. This branch holds human liberty as the highest value. Every human is a singular ray of light that illuminates the world from a different perspective and must be given freedom to express his or her inner truth. You would be familiar with it through the Western democracies. This is the orthodox branch of humanism. When Harari refers to humanism throughout his book, he is often referring to this branch, because it is the dominant branch today. Social humanism is another branch. Socialists and communists still hold human experience as the highest value, but they blame liberals for focusing our attention on our own feelings instead of what other people experience. Individual self-exploration, they explain, is an indulgent bourgeois vice, and that it is most likely to lead you into a capitalist trap. We should instead be focused on social conditions and uniting the workers of this world. Evolutionary humanism is the third branch. While liberals agonize over how to handle situations when people's emotions conflict, evolutionary humanists celebrate the conflict. Conflict, they tell us, is the raw material of natural selection. We need to be honest, they tell us. Some human experiences are superior to others. And when conflict is encountered, the fittest humans should prevail. This is the only way we can continue on the path of evolution. It is futile and dangerous to try and stop this process. The most notorious evolutionary humanists were the Nazis. But not all evolutionary humanists are destructive racists, like they were. Rari then provides several engaging uh, illustrations and examples to help his readers understand the differences between the three branches. I really loved his comparisons, especially when he described how much value each branch of humanism would ascribe to the music of Beethoven, Chuck Berry, a pygmy girls choir, and Howling Wolves. You really have to read it. He also talks about the humanist wars of religion. In particular, World War I was seen as a pointless and destructive war. It undermined liberalism. How can we trust human freedom if this is what it leads to? World War II was a war between the followers of the evolutionary humanist religion against the followers of the liberal and the communist religions. And the Cold War was between the followers of the communist religion and the liberal religion. Harari sums up this section by noting that from 1914... Until the 1980s, it looked like liberalism was going to lose. The liberals were confined to the northwest corner of Europe and North America, whereas most of Asia, Africa, South America, and even Europe turned to communism. But liberalism's fortunes really turned around, so much so that Harari proclaims that as of 2016, there is no serious alternative to the liberal package of individualism, human rights, democracy, and a free market. 
You may be wondering, is there really no alternative? Harari then lists some possible alternatives that you may have thought about. What about protest movements, such as Occupy Wall Street? Occupy Wall Street was current when Harari wrote his book. Maybe Black Lives Matter would be a better example today. Harari says that these movements actually agree with liberalism and are calling out governments for not living up to it. They are not a challenge to liberalism. But what about China? China is definitely different than Western democracies, and it is successful. However, at present, nobody is really sure what China believes. In theory, they are still communist, but they promote a free market and are not really pursuing the communist goals in any meaningful way. This could change in the future, but for now it doesn't offer an alternative to the world. But what about traditional religions? Although they still have billions of adherents, they have been mostly left behind by technological advancements. Many of their adherents take a lot of their true inspiration from humanism. That is, when humanist ideals change, adherents of traditional religions review their scriptures and somehow almost magically find support for the exact same ideals. Because no viable alternative to organized society can be identified, Harari is able to conclude that as of 2016, liberal humanism remains the only viable ideology. That being said, Harari also asks us to realize that numbers alone don't count for much in history. History is often shaped by small groups of forward-looking innovators rather than by backward-looking masses. For example, 10,000 years ago, most people were hunter-gatherers, and only a few pioneers in the Middle East were farmers. And yet the future belonged to the farmers. In the 19th century, 90% of humans were peasants. They didn't know anything about steam engines, railroads, or telegraphs. Yet the fate of the peasants had already been sealed in Manchester and Birmingham by a handful of engineers, politicians, and financiers who spearheaded the Industrial Revolution. In this environment, Karl Marx established the first techno-religion in history and changed the foundations of ideological discourse. Since Marx, questions about technology and economic structure have become far more important and divisive than views on God. During the Industrial Revolution, most people didn't understand what was happening, and hence only a few countries underwent rapid industrialization, and therefore these countries conquered the world. Harari then gives four examples of very successful religious leaders who operated at roughly the same time as Marx. The examples include Hong in China, Dayananda in India, Pope Pius IX, and Mahdi in the Sudan. Each of these religious leaders had large followings. And yet, in spite of their successes, Harari remarks that we don't look back at the 19th century as a century of faith. It is likely that many of us have not even heard of many of these leaders. 
These examples illustrate Harari's principle that history is shaped by small groups of forward-looking innovators rather than by backward-looking masses. They also support Harari's argument that religion and technology always dance a delicate tango. They push one another, depend on one another, and cannot stray too far away from one another. The largest monotheistic movements of the past centuries, which still have millions of adherents today, are not relevant because they don't have anything insightful to say about today's technology. While they were relevant and innovative throughout the Middle Ages, today they are largely reactive, agonizing over the technologies, methods, and ideas propagated by other movements. Communism, which was such a powerful religion in the 20th century, is now mostly obsolete because it is focused on the technology of the industrial age. Communism was very compelling when our technology was steam engines, but it doesn't work very well when our technology is focused around computers. Liberal humanism, on the other hand, adapted far better to the information age, which is why it is the only vibrant ideology right now. However, even though liberalism is riding high right now, the new technologies that are under development will likely undermine it, and it too will become obsolete. The technologies under development aim to achieve the liberal humanist goals of immortality, divinity, and happiness. But humanism is built on the free will of customers and voters. When these technologies demonstrate that customers and voters never make free choices, what happens? The third section of Harari's book explores these technologies and discusses this question. For now, it is enough to note that the technology is developing rapidly and Homo sapiens are transforming themselves into genetically enhanced beings, cyborg beings, and fully non-organic beings. The train is leaving the station, and in order to get a seat on it, you need to understand 21st century technology so that you can exploit it better than your neighbors. Indeed, the gap between those who become enhanced and those who don't will be bigger than the gap between Neanderthals and sapiens. Those left behind will face extinction. Is Harari's conclusion correct? I agree with Harari that for much of history, religion and technology have danced the delicate tango, pushing one another and depending on one another. However, I also think it is a good time to widen our outlook and reconsider our evolution out of the animal world. As Harari noted in an earlier chapter, When asked what separates Homo sapiens from other species, people often point to technology or intelligence. But the reality is our ancestors had the best technology and the best intelligence on the planet for a million years, and yet they were still basically the same as other animals. They lived in small groups, they did not create grand civilizations, and they had minimal impact on the environment. Then, about 70,000 years ago, we experienced a change in the way we cooperate, and this changed everything. Previously, we relied on the dominant structure to control our violence, 
After the change, we relied on social institutions, supported by our stories and intersubjective realities. We call this change the cognitive revolution. So it is an error to point to technology as being the difference between us and animals. The real difference is religion. We have it. Animals don't. Did technology have anything to do with our cognitive revolution? Or was it a passive bystander? While technology wasn't the main story, it must have played a role. Every small step forward in technology or intelligence by our ancestors would have put evolutionary pressure on us to develop even better technology and even greater intelligence and live in larger groups and pursue specialization. This pressure would have put strain on the animal methods for controlling violence, opening up the door to possible evolutionary innovation. These pressures built up slowly over time, and eventually a tipping point was reached. Homo sapiens and their religions emerged. While we can't say the cognitive revolution was inevitable, what is clear is that we did hit a tipping point, and things were extremely different afterwards. So it is worthwhile to ask ourselves where all our current technological development is leading us. Is it leading us on to more of the same, like Harari suggests? Will our future simply be more technology and more powerful religions? Or similar to the last cognitive revolution, are we heading towards a tipping point? That is, is our technological development putting evolutionary pressure on us such that the door to evolutionary innovation is opening up again? If we did evolve into something new, what would this look like? As I was writing up this episode, a story about Sagio Mani popped up in my social media feed. Sagio is a Liverpool football star from Senegal. The news clips mentioned how Sagio was recently spotted cleaning toilets in his local mosque on the same day that he scored a goal for Liverpool against Leicester. Also, before a recent football match, he was seen carrying a damaged phone, much to the surprise of his viewers. His response to why he doesn't live a more indulgent lifestyle was, Why would I want 10 Ferraris? 20 diamond watches or two planes? What will these objects do for me and for the world? Growing up, I was hungry. I had to work in the field. I survived hard times, played football barefooted. I did not have an education and many other things. But today, with what I earned thanks to playing football, I can help my people. I built schools, a stadium. We provide clothes, shoes, and food to people who are in extreme poverty. In addition, I give 70 euros per month to all people in a very poor region of Senegal, which contributes to their family economy. I do not need to display luxury cars, luxury homes, trips and planes. I prefer that my people receive a little of what life has given to me. Sadio is a committed Muslim and he celebrates his goals 
by practicing su'ujud, which means to prostrate yourself before Allah. To Homo sapiens, the most important thing about Saggio is he is a rich footballer, and the second most important thing is that he is a Muslim. The fact that he is a rich footballer establishes value, and his identity as a Muslim establishes his a tribal alliance. But when I look at Saggio, what really interests me is that he seems to be practicing a new way of relating to others. It is not that important to me whether Saggio is a Muslim, a Christian or an atheist, or how he celebrates his goals, or even that he's a rich footballer. What interests me is that he is cleaning toilets when there is no rational reason to do it. At least not from the perspective of our typical understanding of human evolution. How did he get to this point? How does he maintain it? Everything around him is saying he shouldn't be wasting his time and money this way. He should be looking to enhance himself biologically or technologically so that he can be part of the dominant class of the future. So why is he cleaning toilets? To me, Sagio's behavior is indicative of something new happening in our evolution. If we want to know what the future will be like, Sagio and likely those he attends mosque with are the innovators we need to watch. Silicon Valley and Wall Street are carrying on business as usual. They have the masses following them. But their fate has already been sealed by the limitations in Homo sapiens methods for controlling violence. The future belongs to the innovators like Saggio. Homo sapiens cannot easily understand this, and for good reason. Homo sapiens as we know them will not be part of this future. They look for a way to understand Saggio's behavior through the lens of tribal alliances and subtle methods of competition. Perhaps Saggio is doing this to shore up his story about the goodness of Muslims. Or perhaps Saggio is really a liberal humanist underneath the veneer of Islam and is doing it to boost confidence in liberal values. Maybe he is doing it to give himself a sense that he is better than others. Or maybe Saggio is trying to bolster his public image so more people will like him or so that he can monetize it. Of course, Homo sapiens may be partially correct about Saggio, but they could also be missing the bigger picture of something new happening in human evolution. In this chapter, Harari mentions how Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said that the meek and the oppressed are God's favorite people. But this is not what Jesus said. What Jesus actually said was, the meek will inherit the earth. In the correct version of this quote, Jesus does not mention God at all. He is simply making a prediction about the future here on earth, that the meek will inherit it. This statement is structurally identical to the thesis of Harari's book, although their conclusions are different. Harari is saying that in the future, the strong and the powerful will dominate the earth. Those that are biologically and technologically enhanced are the ones who will have the power, and others will go extinct. 
Jesus, on the other hand, is saying that in the future, the earth will be filled with people who he describes as meek. And the strong and the powerful will be just a historical memory. Why does Harari get this quote wrong? The way he writes his book gives me a lot of confidence that when he is relaying facts or quotes, they are correct. He is a historian and has a passion and integrity about getting history right. But in this case, he misquotes Jesus. Why? As I was saying above, Homo sapiens have great difficulty seeing the possibility of the meek inheriting the earth. It's just not the way they operate, and it is difficult and uncomfortable for them to imagine something that is beyond them. This shouldn't be surprising. It is similar to asking Neanderthals to understand what the Egyptian civilization or the British Empire would look like. It is a big ask. Other than the online articles I read, I don't know Saggio or his mosque where he cleans toilets, or the community in Senegal that he helps to support. I'm sure there's lots of information about him that I am missing and that he is likely not perfect. I just thought the story was an interesting example of someone turning away from the life of indulgence when he has every opportunity and justification to indulge and embracing a life of service instead. There are many other examples. We could talk about Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or Martin Luther King Jr. That being said, our evolution into Homo Deus is not about individual heroes. It is about ordinary people meeting in community to learn new ways of relating. Therefore, the best and most pertinent examples that I could possibly give are likely from groups of people who are not famous and live next door to you. And they are just doing it because it feels like the right thing to do for themselves and for the world. These are the forward-looking innovators that you should be watching and ideally joining because the future belongs to them. Wow, that was a lot of material. Thanks for sticking with it to the end. Let me summarize what we discussed in this episode. The religion of modern society is liberal humanism. We often tell the story of modern history as a story of losing faith in God. But it would be better to tell it as a story of gaining faith in humanity. Under humanism, humanity is the center of all meaning for the universe. With the transition from monotheism to humanism, our understanding of ethics, politics, art, economics, and education all changed. Previously, meaning and authority came from God. Under humanism, meaning and authority come from humanity. Humanity plays the role that God used to play. In spite of the fact that humanism and monotheism are very different and come to many different conclusions, they actually agree on quite a few things too. For example, both humanism and monotheism determine that murder and theft are wrong. In fact, all societies we know of have prohibitions against murder and theft. We would not expect this convergence 
if all religions were completely arbitrary. These rules must be based on something real. The connection to reality is that in order to survive, societies need to control violence. Without rules against murder and theft, society would fall into chaos. Basing ethics on the real-world principle of eliminating our violence is much more solid ground than basing it on what God said in some book or on human feelings. However, ethics based on eliminating our violence is very challenging, as ultimately it requires each of us to change in very fundamental ways. Today there is no viable alternative to organizing homo sapien society other than the liberal package of individualism, human rights, democracy, and a free market. On the other hand, if we expand our outlook to include the possibility of humanity evolving into a new species, then there is a viable alternative. Since the cognitive revolution 70,000 years ago, religion and technology have danced a delicate tango, pushing one another and depending on one another. Religions go obsolete, or possibly evolve, when technology changes. For this reason, to understand where the future is, we often need to look at small groups of innovators rather than the backward-looking masses. When asked what separates humans from animals, people often make the mistake of pointing to intelligence or technology. But the real difference lies in how we cooperate together, relying on social institutions and intersubjective realities. Similarly, when people look to the future, they make the same mistake in thinking it will be all about technology. Technology is important, but like the last cognitive revolution, it is pushing us towards a tipping point. The main story is about how we relate to each other. Technology is just a part of the supporting cast. We shouldn't get distracted by it. The Homo Deus that Harari talks about, who are biologically or technologically enhanced, cooperate in the same way as Homo sapiens, and therefore they will have the same problem controlling violence as we do. We should expect them to engage in destructive wars and commit a terrible atrocities just like we have. They are still Homo sapiens. To understand the future, we should be looking at small groups of innovators who are practicing a new way of relating. Instead of competing for advantage and establishing alliances within the boundaries of the religion of the day, they are training themselves in new ways of selfless cooperating because they find it truly desirable. It is difficult for Homo sapiens to understand or imagine something that is beyond itself. Explaining it to them is like explaining Egyptian civilization or the British Empire to Neanderthals. It just doesn't fit into categories they understand or are comfortable with. This difficulty causes us to greatly underestimate the possibility of humanity taking this evolutionary step. 
I gave Sagio Mani as an example of the new kind of homo deus because even though he is a rich footballer, he uses his wealth to help others, greatly limits his indulgences, and participates in his local mosque by cleaning toilets. But we shouldn't obsess over heroes. The best and most pertinent examples are the people who live down the street from you who are trying to organize their lives around these principles. They may not look like much, but they are the people you should be watching and ideally joining because the future belongs to them. So please join me for the eighth episode in this podcast, which focuses on a time bomb in the laboratory. In his book, Harari describes how advances in science are undermining the facts that humanism depends on. When these advances result in changes to everyday technology, routine activities, and economic structures, it is hard to see how humanism will last. We will talk about some of these technological advancements and also how it puts humanity in a precarious position as humanism is our basis for cooperation. We will look back to some of the key transition points in our path of development and see if there are any lessons for today. <music>